Lord, we love You, and we know that You are good. You are always good. And we are so grateful that we can come to You now in this tragic time. And we can cry out on behalf of those who have lost someone that they love. And we can ask, Lord, that You would pour Your mercy out upon them, that You would meet these families who are so greatly grieved right now, and that You would bring them comfort, that You would bring them peace somehow, some way, Lord. Use this situation to draw people to Yourself. Lord, we can come to You in our time of need. We can cast our cares upon You because You care for us. And Lord, we want uh, anyone who's been affected by this tragedy to have that, to have that same grace. So Lord, we just ask that You would be in the midst. We know You are, God. We know that You are uh, reaching and, and loving and comforting and working in this tragic situation. And we just pray that You would continue to do so for Your glory and for the sake of those people who so desperately need You. We love You, Lord, and we thank You that You are kind and that You're merciful. And we also ask, Father, that You would bless this service as we've gathered here to worship You and to study the Word and to learn of You, God, I pray that You would meet us here. I know that You are here moving among Your people. Lord, You indwell us, God. You fill us. You fill this room. You fill the heavens, Lord. And uh, we ask that You would be glorified through the teaching of Your Word and that we would be encouraged, we would be challenged, we would be convicted, God. We would be refreshed. I pray that You would speak through me. Lord, use me, God. May I speak with clarity, with boldness, with love, with passion, conviction, accuracy. Use me, Lord, for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Alright, we're going to read the first six verses. That's all we're going to cover today. Six verses, and it's, it's pretty straightforward and to the point. I'm excited to share this text with you guys, so let's read chapter 6, verse 1 in Mark. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. So I want to kind of start wide here, just a kind of overview of the theme of this book and just narrow it down to where we're at. So I had already mentioned a couple weeks ago, really what is the central theme of the Gospels? In general, what is it? that the Gospels are attempting to communicate. Does anybody remember? Hmm? The life of Jesus. Jesus. Alright, that's good. Specifically about Jesus. He is Savior, yes. Very true. Hmm? Repentance. Repentance, okay, yeah, absolutely. But He's the Son of God. 
Jesus is the Son of God. And it says in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that, that in a large part, is what the Gospels are attempting to communicate to us. Now, there, there's a goal in this. The goal is that we would believe. That we would believe in Jesus. It says in John chapter 20, verse 31, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in His name. So that's the objective, guys. These accounts are given to us so that we would know and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And when we embrace that, we believe that, we believe on His name and faith, we would have eternal life. Now there's so much more than that. There's so much more that we can learn from the Gospels. And, um, you know... Each gospel account kind of has a different flavor to it. And it kind of portrays Christ in a different light. And Mark specifically kind of portrays Christ as the servant. And he says of himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But generally speaking, this is Jesus, the Son of God. I don't want to go all far on this, but I've been really studying the Trinity in the last couple of months. Um, and it's been pretty amazing to me what that has done for my perspective on Christ. And um, this can, obviously we know how confusing this can get, so this is just a very short side trail. But um, I used to think of Son of God almost as if it were a lesser term, a lesser title. You have God and then you have the Son of God, Jesus. But it's so much more than that as I have begun to really immerse myself and the Trinity. And one of the easier ways to understand the Trinity for us is how the, um, how the Trinity relates to us. The Father has created the heavens and the earth. He's created us. He sent His Son to die for our sins and to redeem mankind. And the Holy Spirit has come to indwell the sinner and to sanctify and to seal us until that day of glorification. So in that sense, we kind of understand the Trinity, right? But what was the Trinity like when there was no creation? How would you understand the Trinity before there was humanity to relate to, right? And that starts to get a little deeper. And the Scriptures talk about that. Jesus alludes to the fact that He existed with the Father in glory before the world was created. And I started to understand that that's the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity before He took on flesh. So when Jesus is referred to as the Son of God, that is not some generic title, some lesser than title. That is the second person of the Trinity who has always been and will always be and who is God, the triune God, one God, three persons. So when it says the Son of God, that's huge. That is big time. That is the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, Eternal living Son. Amen? Amen? And that's what the Gospel is intended to communicate in large part. And we, I would desire, God's desire is that we would all come to faith in Christ. We would believe that and that we would have eternal life. Now, having said that, there are two times in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where Jesus marvels. Jesus is astonished. Jesus is amazed. And you know what those are? One is Luke chapter 9, 
or excuse me, chapter 7, verse 9, it says, When Jesus heard these things, He marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. He's talking about a Roman centurion soldier who was pleading with Jesus to come to or to, to heal someone in his household, but he said, Jesus, you don't even have to come to my house. I am a man of authority. I understand how that works. You can just say it, say the words, and it'll be done. And Jesus was shocked at this man's great faith. He marveled. But there's another time when Jesus marvels. And it's in the text that we are in today. The verse that I just read, chapter 6, verse 6, it says, And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. So Jesus marvels, that's not a word that we use very much, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but Jesus marvels at great faith. He's astonished, he's amazed by great faith, but he marvels at unbelief. He's astonished, he's shocked at disbelief. Those two things. Now, where Jesus is at right now, we'll talk about that more in a moment, these people should have great faith. They have plenty of reasons to believe on Jesus for being who He says He is. In this region, okay, here at the Sea of Galilee, remember at this point we're in the northernmost part of Israel, and that's where the Sea of Galilee is. You guys will remember He was on one side of the lake preaching all day. He was in a boat just out from the shore a little way. And then he paddled out. Okay, they went to sail across the sea. They got caught in the storm. So there was that miracle that happened. Jesus had power over nature. He, he stopped the, the storm. He, he calmed the sea. Gets over to the other side and immediately he encounters this demon-possessed man. Right? You guys remember the story. He cast the, the demons out of the uh, man into the, the herd of pigs. And then the people of the, uh, that region, they begged for him to leave. They were like, please just depart from here. So he goes back across the lake. And so now he's back in Capernaum and he encounters the woman with the issue of blood. And so he heals her. He has power over disease. And then he goes to Jairus' house. And what did he do? Do you remember? He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. So there he showed that he had power to even bring the dead to life. He did all this just like that and he's back in his hometown right there in that same region. And the people are like, who is this guy? We know who he is. And Jesus is shocked. He marvels. He can't believe that uh, they have no faith. That they don't believe in him. So, I guess what I want us to consider is there's really two extremes here. There is unbelief, disbelief, and then you kind of have various stages in between, and then there's great faith. There's belief. Jesus marvels at both. One is He's very impressed. He's very blessed by that. One is He's dumbfounded. He's shocked. He doesn't understand. And I think I would have us consider where do we fall on that scale? Where do we fall? Somewhere in the middle, maybe apathetic, um, not overly concerned with these things? Are we on the, the side of total rejection? We don't believe? Are we doing really well? Are we excited about the things of God? Are we living by faith? Are we taking faith steps? Where do we, where do we stand? 
How would Jesus marvel at you? What kind of marvel would it be? So I want that to kind of be on our minds as we're working our way through this text. So verse 1. Then he went out from there and he came to his own country and his disciples followed him. So I already made the point. He was back in uh, Capernaum and he goes out from there. He goes inland a little bit to Nazareth. That is his own country. That is where Jesus grew up. Now he was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. This is not his first trip back to Nazareth. Now, he launched out into his preaching ministry where for three years he would heal, he would preach, he would do his thing, his public ministry. But he's already been back to Nazareth one time, and we see that in Luke chapter 4. You don't have to turn there, but a lot of you may be familiar with this account. You'll remember that he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. Everyone was standing around listening. And he talked about how he was the fulfillment of that Scripture. He was the one who would come and who would... uh, preach to the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the, to the captives and sight to the blind, so on and so forth. And then he continued on and by the end of that chapter, they were ready to kill him. They actually tried. They were going to throw him off of a cliff and it said that he went through the midst of the people and he went on his way. So that was his first experience back at home in Nazareth. You would think after that he probably wouldn't go back, Right? But here we are, he's back home again, and such is the graciousness of our Lord. Are we not so grateful that he came after us over and over and over again? I can recall over the years many times where the Lord sent people into my life to try to reach this knucklehead. And uh, and I'm so grateful looking back that I could pinpoint some of those times. Probably several times I didn't even notice, but I appreciate that about the Lord. And so we see here he's in the synagogue. Pastor Bill talked a little bit about that a few weeks ago. This is not the temple, but people, when the temple was destroyed and they got taken out of the land into captivity, they started having gatherings where they would meet. There had to be at least ten Jewish males to, to have a synagogue. And so when they came back to the land and rebuilt, they continued this practice. So they would meet on Saturday, the Sabbath, and they would meet at the synagogue. It could be that Jesus has been to this very synagogue over a thousand times. If you do the math, if He came weekly throughout His life to this specific synagogue, let's just say He did, then it would be over a thousand times that He has been to this place. The people that are there, it says that they're astonished at His words. This is interesting to me. The word astonished, it means struck. Basically, their minds are blown. They, they are shocked at the words of this man and the wisdom, the power, but it didn't get a hold of them. They were astonished, but they were not moved to love, to devotion, to submission to Him. And then they asked the first question, is this not the carpenter? Now this is not good, as you would probably imagine. The fact that they refer to Jesus as the carpenter and the Son of Mary, this is not a compliment. First off, it's kind of like saying, Who is this guy? He has no theological training. He's not come up in the school of the rabbis. He has no credibility. He leaves as a carpenter and comes back as a rabbi complete with his school of disciples. Give me a break. We know who this this guy is. This is the son of Mary. That's another little indication there. It wasn't typical for someone to be referred to as the son of and then they named the mother. Typically, um, they would name the father. So, it is possible at this point Joseph is not even alive anymore. A lot of people have suggested that. 
Um, it could be that Joseph has already passed away and that Jesus is kind of the head of the family. But it is also possible, and it could be both, but possible that they are referring to Mary. You remember she was, um, Jesus was born of a virgin, right? But most people wouldn't have known that. And when Joseph found out that she was pregnant, um, he assumed adultery. And he said that he, being a just man, was going to put her away quietly. Uh, he could have probably had her stoned. Uh, they were under the betrothal contract at that time. And then it was revealed to Joseph that the child that she, she had was uh, of the Holy Spirit. He was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. Um, but no doubt there were rumors. No doubt there were people who uh, would try to suggest and even mock Jesus. And in John chapter 8, we think we kind of see it there when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and uh, he's talking about they claim Abraham as their father, but Abraham would not act the way they're acting. And then they kind of jab back and they say, we weren't born of fornication. Abraham is our father. And so it would appear that, that uh, people would try to jab Jesus with that on occasion, having no clue of the truth. And then it says his brothers and his sisters, are they not here with us? So... Here we see clearly from the Scriptures Jesus did have brothers and sisters. Now these would have been half-brothers and sisters, right? Because His true Father was our Heavenly Father. But nevertheless, Mary and Joseph did go on to have children after Jesus was born. Now I'm sure a lot of us have probably heard of the, the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. And Roman Catholicism, really, they pushed that. But we see here that they had children. They had several children. And we know two of them are also authors uh, in the New Testament. The book of Jude and the book of James. These are both half-brothers of Jesus. But at this time, they didn't believe. They didn't believe Jesus. And it says that they were offended. They were offended. They were offended at Jesus. They could not believe. Who is this guy, this carpenter, this son of Mary? We know this guy. We've known him all his life. We've seen him in the synagogue a thousand times. And he goes out and comes back now and he's this rabbi. Get out of here. They weren't trying to hear it. They were offended at Jesus. And then Jesus says in verse 4, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. So here we have a Jesus proverb. A prophet is respected everywhere but at home. You've probably heard the saying, familiarity breeds contempt, right? When we're around someone frequently, it's easy to become just a little too casual. Um, and this can manifest itself in different extremes, but I, I think about even here. Um, I have the blessing of being around Pastor Bill and Pastor Vince frequently. And uh, because of that, I can get real chummy with them and we do joke and laugh. But at the end of the day, they're not my buddies. They're my pastors. And I have to honor that and respect that. And so we can play around up to a point. Um, but I have to recognize I, I honor these men. They are my elders. They are my pastors. And uh, they deserve my respect. And I have to be careful. It can happen even in that context and this is certainly what was happening with Jesus. Verse 5 says, Now he could do no mighty work there, 
except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. So first off, Jesus marveled. He could do no mighty work there, and he marveled. This word, it means amazed, astonished, surprised, to stand in awe, wonder, not to believe one's eyes or ears, dumbfounded and flabbergasted. Right? That's, that's what the word means. And that's, Jesus couldn't believe it. He was shocked. He marveled at their unbelief. Now, the, the word unbelief here is apistia. And you'll remember a couple of weeks ago when I taught on Jesus and the storm. And he said, how is it that you have no faith? And that word is pistia. We talked about having confidence, trust, belief. Jesus asked His disciples. I mean, He couldn't get a break. And He was like, how is it that you have no faith? So here, it's the opposite of that. This unbelief is apistia. Unfaithfulness and distrust. That's what they had. These were unfaithful people. They had no trust in Jesus. And He marveled at that. So I wanted to take a few minutes and talk about different kinds of unbelief. Because uh, there are different kinds. And there are some that are, you know, would describe people who absolutely don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe the Gospel. They don't believe the Bible. We'll talk about that. But then even as those who would consider themselves to be believers, those of us who have committed our lives to this and to Christ, we struggle with unbelief at times too, don't we? So I want to talk about that. So first off, unbelief. Flat out rejection. I don't believe this stuff. I don't want to hear it. Get away from me. I don't believe it. There, there's that most blatant rejection and at times can result in hostility, mockery, so on and so forth. It wouldn't be too hard to run into that around here in this area. Where I'm from, man, you're hard-pressed to find someone who would say they're an atheist. It's, I know that might sound crazy, but it's just the way it is. I lived in Tennessee for five years, and I, I honestly think I can recall maybe one person who, who flat out, maybe two, one or two who would just say it. So when my wife and I decided to move here, we were excited because we were like, at least people will admit it out here. They don't believe this stuff, you know. And now we have a, somewhere to start from because, you know, there it's like, you have to start by convincing them that they don't actually believe. And then move forward. And, and so, since I've been here, and I'll, and I'll have phone conversations with brothers back home, and I'm telling them how it is, and they're like, man, that sounds sweet. That sounds so much cooler. To, to, and I'm like, yeah, I, I guess. I don't know. Um, but it's, it's just a different world. Okay. Now, there are others who are indifferent. I see this especially with second generation Christians, right? You have people who, uh, and it's not true of everyone, second generation or third generation Christians, right? Um, but I've noticed that there are people who grew up in a life of rebelliousness. The Lord saves them. They're passionate. They love the Lord. They're on fire for Him. And then their, their children come up in a home where they're taught it from a youth. And it's... They're just, it's the normal thing and it, it never really got a hold of them and they're good kids and they do what they're supposed to do and they're obedient, but there, there isn't that passion. It's not always that way. There are people who 
Um, they're, they're good kids. They grow up. They encounter Christ personally. It's no longer their parents' faith, but it's their own. And they're on fire for Jesus. You do have that. Um, but I have definitely noticed there's something about the kids that grow up in Christian homes that for some reason it, it's just not as real to them. And I, I feel like this almost parallels the Nazarenes. They were used to Jesus. They had been around Jesus. And it was no big thing for them, Jesus. And uh, I think in the same way, this can be true, that indifference, that apathy. Some believe these things are true, but it's just not true for me. This is your truth. Okay, so you can have your truth, but I have my truth, and that's not it. Don't talk to me about that. It's all true, right? That's not truth. That is not true. That's not belief. Alright, then there are some who, they always just need one more thing. Lord, if you'll just get me out of this. Lord, if you'll just do that, then I'll believe. And we see that in John chapter 6. They say, what sign do you have for us? You know, Moses gave us manna. Moses gave us bread from heaven. What are you going to do that we might believe? And Jesus was like, you know what? No sign will be given to this wicked and adulterous generation, but that of the prophet Jonah. Jesus didn't play that game, you know. Jesus was the sign. He was like, okay, God gave you bread from heaven. I am the bread from heaven. Okay, Moses gave you a sign. I am the sign. There are people who always just want that one more thing. If Jesus, you'll just do this, then I'll believe. That's not belief. There are some people who believe they believe. They think they believe. They would say they believe, but their life doesn't demonstrate it at all. And that's kind of what I... Uh, dealt with a lot more you know in the south and we would go into the jails and teach and and jess my wife she would teach the women and she would have a good group and <clears throat> how many of you in here are saved and every one of their hands would go up how many of you can tell me what the gospel is they couldn't they didn't know you know they prayed some prayer or went down the aisle 15 years earlier and then went right off into a life of lawlessness um, there was no fruit, no reason to believe that this person had, had been born again or, or changed. Um, they, they think they believe, but there was no saving faith. There was no true repentance. So you have different kinds of unbelief. <clears throat> but now let's talk about the unbelief of the believer. I found this interesting. C.S. Lewis talked about this, and I heard this years ago, and this is a total paraphrase. You really can't escape it. It doesn't matter what side you're on. You struggle with wondering if you're wrong. You know, I think we can all relate with that on some level. Unbelievers have moments, whether they want to admit it or not, where they wonder, if there, is there a God and are they wrong? The Bible teaches that eternity is in the heart of man. We all know it. We all have this sense that there's something more than this and that there is a Creator. Romans talks about how uh, creation testifies to a creator. And there's also this saying I like, there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. You've heard that? Okay. When, when things get bad enough, they're going to be crying out. But on the flip side, even as a believer, there are times where we struggle with that in our weakness and in our flesh and uh, our finite thinking. We wonder if we got it wrong. And, and we go through that and we wrestle with that and the Lord brings us through it. But it's something that we all struggle with on either side. For the believer, this could manifest in doubting God's goodness. Something happened that you don't understand. You, don't, you wouldn't do that if you were God. You don't agree. 
And you are calling into question God's goodness. One thing, one of the reasons why it's so crucial that you know your Bible is because you need to know that you know God, who He is and how He is. And that you don't filter that through your circumstances. No matter what your circumstances, God is good. The Bible is clear about that. But we can doubt that sometimes. Right? We can have unbelief. It can manifest itself in doubting God's faithfulness. How many times has God proven that He is faithful to you? To me? And how often do we doubt that God's going to come through again? Right? We do it all the time. And the Bible is very clear. Even when we are faithless, God is faithful. He cannot deny Himself. He cannot deny who He is. He is faithful God. But we can, we can doubt that sometimes. We can doubt. We may ask something of God and not really believe that He'll do it. We may doubt God's provision. We may doubt God's guidance. We may doubt God's salvation. We as believers, we can fall into doubt. Not good. You know, but the, the Lord is faithful and I believe that He brings us through that and He grows our faith and, and we, we rise above that. But those are things that we can struggle with. And Jesus was shocked by their disbelief. Now this is, this is kind of the, the, the point I want to get to with this. For the believer, well, let's just notice what happened when Jesus marveled at their unbelief. It said that He could do no mighty work there. You know, he, he healed a few sick people and then He went on. He went His way. The scope of Jesus' work was limited. God hit me with this verse a couple months ago. I was really struggling. I was doubting. And I don't know if it was that I was... We just finished teaching Mark in the youth group. Dalton and myself, we were working our way through it. And it could be that in God's providence, I came across this verse at that time. I can't really remember what it was, but... It really hit me. You know when the, a, a word just grabs a hold of you from the Bible and you know like the Lord was speaking to you? And it was a sobering moment. And I thought, wow, in my doubt and unbelief, could it be that I might hinder God from doing uh, what He desires to do? Now let me just say this. There are times when God's going to do what God's going to do. And you can't stop that. Nobody, nothing can stop that. When God raised people from the dead, was it because of their great faith? No, they had no faith. They were dead, right? And so God in His sovereign plan, He's going to do what He's going to do. But it, it would seem that at times we can circumvent that or we can stop that from, uh, from happening as, as fully as God perhaps uh, would have done, right? Um, I hadn't planned on getting into this, but I, I will. Um, God is, uh, we can't change God's mind, right? God is sovereign and, and He does what He's going to do, okay? And we can't, He's all-knowing. He's never learned anything. There's never a point in which He learns something that He didn't know or steps to a situation and, and says, wow, that, I didn't expect that. That surprised me. What do I do? But there are times when, based on decisions that we make, God may act differently. 
He may set out to judge and then someone repents and then He doesn't judge. And we saw that happen, right? In Jonah and and different places. And uh, that is called the mobility of God. Meaning God is free to act differently at times if He so chooses. And it typically is based upon our response. Uh, we, We have an option. Go this way, go that way. Just know whichever way you go, God will act He may bless, He may chastise, He may judge, right? So, it's scary to think that we could hinder what God wants to do or what God perhaps would do. Now, we see this in James chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. It says, if someone were to ask, if you desire wisdom, God desires to give it. And He desires to give it generously. It says, but you have to ask in faith, no doubting, He who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. If you doubt the Lord, if you ask, don't expect anything from Him. You know, you're double-minded, unstable. So this is one of the ways in which we could stop the, the hand of God, you know. He says, I'll give it to you if you believe, but if you doubt, then I won't. So we can see as believers that we might not experience the fullness of God's blessing. But what is really scary here is that Jesus went elsewhere. Jesus packed up His show and went on to the next town. Worst case scenario for an unbeliever. Worst case scenario for an unbeliever. God just says, okay, have at it. It's yours. You don't want me. You want this. You want the world? It's yours. And He'll do that. And it says it in Romans chapter 1, verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. God will give them over. God will let you do that. Ephesians 4.19, it says, "...who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all cleanness with greediness." Uh, this being past feeling, it means rejection and sin to the point where you are so callous you can't even feel it anymore. You are desensitized. There is no conviction. There is no guilt. There is no uh, conscience. And God will hand you over. He'll let you do that. That is the scariest thing. That is the judgment of God. When God gives people over to their sin and then they're hardened in it. That's my warning. Let that sink in deep. Anyone in this room who doesn't know the Lord, anyone who's listening on Facebook right now or YouTube, don't reject the Lord. How will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? Hebrews. There is no other way. And God will let you. But the good news, good news, Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe, there's that word, believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Believe. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, If you know it, if you know in your heart that this is true, 
and that God is real and that He sent His Son and that His Son died for you, died for your sins and rose from the grave and conquered death, victorious over sin, and He did it for you. You believe that. You entrust yourself to the Lord. You confess it with your mouth. You're not ashamed of the Lord. This is not a secret. It's not something that you hide. You believe it and you'll tell it. You can be saved. You can be saved. And that is good news. That is good news. So believe. Believe. If you don't know Him, you can know Him. Today is the day. You can confess Christ. You can believe on Him. And Jesus can marvel at your great belief in a good way. Good kind of marvel. Jesus can be blessed by your belief. He deserves that. Worthy is the Lamb to receive His reward. Is He not? He can be pleased. He can be blessed with your belief. My Christian brothers and sisters, if you're struggling, if you're doubting God's faithfulness, if you're doubting God's goodness, if you're doubting God's provision, don't do that. He's proven Himself over and over and over again. Believe. Trust. Have confidence. Believe the Lord. Let Jesus marvel in a good way at your belief and your trust. Let Him be pleased. Worthy is the Lamb to receive the reward for His suffering, is He not? Let Him receive His reward. Trust Him. Love Him. Serve Him. Obey Him. And if you don't know Him, you can know Him today. You can believe. We'll we'll close right there. Worship team, if you want to come up, we're going to close with a song. I want to pray for us. We'll have people up front available to pray for you. Um, Those of you who typically come up, come on up. And uh, if you want to confess Christ, if you want to put your trust in Him, you can do that here and now. Today is the day you can believe on Jesus. If you're struggling, if you're struggling with doubt or fear or unbelief even as a believer, we want to pray for you. We want to encourage you in the Lord. We want to encourage you. Father, we love You. We praise You. We believe, Lord. We believe. We know that You are the Son of God and that You came to save and You died for us and You rose again. And we are sure, Lord, and we love You and we want to serve You and and bless Your name. And we're going to worship You now. We're going to praise You because You're worthy to be praised. I pray if there's anybody that is... uh, struggling or maybe afraid to come forward, God, give them the boldness to just do it. To overcome that and come forward and receive prayer. In Jesus' name, Amen.